So Exodus 19, starting at verse 3. Then Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. So Moses came, summoned the elders of the people, and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And the people all answered as one, everything that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Our New Testament reading is from Matthew and a variety of different verses, but starting uh, Matthew 6 and verse 33. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And then moving to Matthew 7 and verse 7. Ask and it will be given you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives and everyone who searches finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. And then Matthew 13 and verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Amen. Well, this week, we're coming to the end of our little series looking at the so-called parables of the kingdom, which we've been working our way through on Communion Sundays this year. What we've found time and again is that the way Jesus tells these short stories has subverted the way in which the Pharisees of his time were making use of traditional images from within the Hebrew tradition to justify their version of nationalistic pride and religious intolerance. So, if you cast your mind back, the parable of the mustard seed undermined their desire for Jerusalem to tower over the nations of the world like a mighty cedar. The parable of the yeast undermined the Pharisees' desire for Israel to become so ritually pure that all other people were excluded from God's love. The parable of the treasure undermined the Pharisees' desire to make following God about duty rather than joy. And the parable of the dragnet undermined the Pharisees' desire to declare themselves and those like them as good, whilst everyone else was declared evil. And so we come to the last one, today's short parable of the precious pearl. And here we find Jesus striking right at the heart of the Pharisees' understanding of the kingdom of God. So their understanding of the kingdom of God would have been informed by, for example, the passage we just had read to us from Exodus. 
where God says to Israel, you are my chosen people. Out of all the world I have called you. You're the special ones. Well, in order to understand how Jesus undermines what the Pharisees do with this, we need to have a bit of an insight into what pearls meant for Jews in the first century. And part of the difficulty here is that the Old Testament doesn't mention pearls at all. It talks about jewels, and it talks about corals, but it doesn't, doesn't actually mention pearls. And we don't have any Old Testament passage that clearly lies behind the way Jesus uses this image of a precious pearl in his parable about the nature of the kingdom of heaven. Now, this isn't to say, however, that pearls were unknown in the ancient world. Quite the opposite. Pearls were very well known, and they were astronomically expensive. So, uh, if you spoke about a pearl, because we've got other literature that does mention pearls, they're typically used as a kind of a figure of speech for something of supreme worth. Now, in some ways, if you were to update this parable, and we had a bit of fun updating some of the other parables, we might find that we'd need to substitute the word diamond for pearl. You know, uh, but not just like a little diamond that we might have on a ring, you know, maybe like the Koh-i-Noor or, you know, the Star of India or something like that, to get an idea of what's going on here. Now, of course, these days with pearls, every jeweler's shop offers strings of freshwater pearls which are generated by the industrial farming of freshwater mussels. And uh, when Liz and I were in Southeast Asia earlier this year, we went to a pearl factory. And we were shown how the workers would take, a, take a, an oyster and using tweezers would insert a little speck into it and this would start the process of the pearl forming. But in the ancient world, of course, things were very different. Beautiful pearls would only exist if they occurred naturally, which meant that they were, at the time, the most valuable objects in existence. Probably the reason they're not really mentioned in the Old Testament is that they were so rare that even Israel's kings would have struggled to own one. There are some stories, though, from within the early Jewish tradition which use the image of a precious pearl to say something important about the nature of faith. So in one of these, a Jewish tailor needs a fish to make an offering on the Sabbath. You know, he's committed himself to doing that. Uh, but he's forgotten to buy his fish on his way to uh, make his offering. So he gets there, and at the last minute, he has to buy a fish, and uh, the uh, fish seller realises that he's got somebody who's uh, over a barrel here and whacks the price right up, and the tailor ends up paying an outrageous price for the fish, only to find when he opens it, it has within it a pearl that he sells, and it supplies him with all he needs for the rest of his life. <coughs> The point of this little story from the Jewish tradition is clear. If you faithfully keep the Sabbath, even at great cost to yourself, God will reward you, probably with great riches and blessings beyond what you could otherwise have imagined. I've come across some churches that offer teaching a bit like that. Another early Jewish story, possibly related to the, the one of the tailor, these things have a habit of going round and changing slightly as they do so, comes from a collection of sayings known as the Babylonian Talmud. And again, it's concerned to show that wealth comes to those who honour the Sabbath and observe the commandments to you. I'll read it to you. It's quite short, but a little bit longer than Jesus' parable. 
There was a certain Gentile who owned much property. He went and sold all his property and bought a pearl with the proceeds, which he placed in his hat. As he was crossing a bridge, the wind blew the hat off and cast it into the water, and a fish swallowed the pearl. Later on, some fishermen hauled the fish up and brought it to the market on the eve of the Sabbath towards sunset. They cried, who will buy our fish now? And they were told, go and take it to Joseph who honours the Sabbaths. He'll buy it. So they took it to him and he bought it. And he cut it open and he found a pearl therein and he sold it for 13 rooms full of gold coins. And a certain old man met him and said, he who lends to the Sabbath, the Sabbath repays him. So again, the point is clear. If you do right by the Sabbath, then the Sabbath will do right for you. There's an added frisson of a little bit of kind of subtle racism going on here. You know, the Gentile money will find its way into Jewish hands if, if you're good and honour the Sabbath. All of which gives us an insight into the kind of religious traditions surrounding precious pearls that would have been behind Jesus' little parable. If you'd asked a Pharisee of Jesus' day how a pearl related to his religion, he would probably have told you that it was a symbol of his piety, a symbol of God's reward for his faithfulness, for carefully studying the Torah, for honoring the Sabbath, and for keeping the commandments. And that if he did these things, the pearls would symbolize the great reward he could expect to get back from God in exchange for his faithfulness. So, if Jesus had said, the kingdom of heaven is like a precious pearl, then the Pharisees would surely have agreed with him. They would have suggested that the kingdom was a thing of rare value, only available to the select few who were blessed by God in exchange for their piety and faith. But Jesus didn't say, the kingdom of heaven is like a precious pearl. He said something subtly different. He said... The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. And on finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. The emphasis in Jesus' parable is not on the pearl itself. It's on the act of seeking. The metaphor for the kingdom that's operative here is not an object, but an action. The kingdom in Jesus' parable is experienced through seeking and finding and sacrificing and acting decisively. And this changes things considerably because it makes the kingdom something that anybody can aspire to rather than something that's bestowed by God on a select few. Anyone can seek the kingdom. And as Jesus says elsewhere in Matthew's Gospel, and as we heard in our reading earlier, search and you will find. For everyone who searches, finds. However, before we continue with this train of thought and think a little bit more about searching and finding, uh, what this might mean to search and find a precious pearl as an action of the kingdom coming into our midst, I think it's worth having in our minds some of the ways in which Christians have used this parable down the centuries. Because we are the heirs to a tradition of interpretation, every bit as much as the Pharisees were. 
various Christian interpreters have made suggestions as to what or who is symbolized by the pearl in Jesus' parable. Some have suggested that the pearl should be understood as Jesus himself, and therefore the invitation is to seek after Jesus and possess him, casting off other lesser pearls and treasures, such as maybe doing good works or the pursuit of knowledge. This interpretation takes us in the direction of a kind of pietistic religion, where the focus is on the worship of Jesus to the exclusion of everything else that might distract us. I've been to some churches a bit like that. Others have suggested that the pearl is to be understood as the new covenant of Christianity, and the invitation is therefore to pursue the Christian path, setting aside the lesser pearls of the law and the prophets. This interpretation takes us in the direction of exclusive religion, where the focus is on following the path of Jesus to the exclusion of all other revelations of God's nature. I've been to some churches like that too. Others have suggested that the pearl is to be understood as the church itself, with its buildings and its priests and its rules and its rituals. And this interpretation takes us in the direction of ecclesial religion, where the focus is on the correct observance of the sacraments and the diligent offering of services of worship at the prescribed times of day to the exclusion of less structured ways of encountering God in Jesus. Well, I've never actually been part of a church that's like that, but I know plenty. There are other traditions out there. Still others have suggested that the pearl is to be understood as the teachings of Jesus, as revealed in the Sermon on the Mount or elsewhere in the teaching sections of the Gospels, as interpreted and applied by the historic doctors and doctrines of the church. And this interpretation takes us in the direction of legalistic religion, where the focus is on obedience to the teachings and on a plain and literal reading of the Bible, to the exclusion of an openness to the continuous revelation of God's will through the discovery of new light and truth as it breaks forth from God's word. I've been in some fairly legalistic Christian settings over the years too. And all of these different allegorical interpretations that Christianity has generated from this parable have proved popular at different points in our Christian tradition. So for centuries, you had the hegemony of Catholic Christendom, but then you had the drastic separationism of the radical reformers, and then you had the legalistic bibliolatry of the fundamentalists and kind of almost worshipping the word of the Bible, and then you have the emotively charged worship of the evangelical charismatic tradition. And the thing is, whilst I am broadly in favour of Christians meeting in church for discipleship, teaching and accountability. You're all very welcome to be here. And whilst I am broadly in favour of there being something distinctive about the people of Christ, and whilst I am broadly in favour of taking the Bible seriously, I mean, I've done three degrees in the study of it over the years, and whilst I am broadly in favour of worship being emotionally engaging, I don't actually think that any of these are what Jesus is talking about in his parable of the precious pearl. And when we inherit interpretations like those I've just outlined, 
we run the risk of doing what Christians so often do, which is to overlay our own concerns and preferences onto the text, so that Jesus seems to be saying by the end of it exactly what we think Jesus ought to be saying. Now, some of you might well say, well, come on, Woodman, how are you any different? And it's a good point. So, as always, I offer my reading provisionally for us to weigh together. Because the task of interpreting scripture for our time and our place is not mine alone. It's a task we share. Anyway, back to the precious pearl. The Pharisees would have seen the pearl of great price as symbolic of their own rather hardline and exclusive interpretation of the Jewish law. Keep the law their way and you get the benefits. But don't and you don't. Against this, Jesus says that the kingdom is not the pearl. It is rather the process of seeking, of finding, and of taking decisive action. Jesus is offering the kingdom here to all who seek it. And I can only imagine how the rather exclusive Pharisees felt when they realized what he was saying. No longer, according to Jesus' parable, is the kingdom a well-kept secret a precious gift for the favoured few, it is instead available to be found by all who go looking for it. But this is no offer of cheap grace. This is not a cost-free path to the kingdom. Because the possession of the kingdom in Jesus' parable involves a radical act of reversal. Sure, Anyone can find it if they seek it. But possessing it is inextricable from repentance. Listen to the parable again. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, and on finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. The merchant gives up everything that he previously held to be of value in order to possess the kingdom that he has found. And the implication is that the kingdom is possessed only when those seeking it similarly reorientate their lives towards the new reality that is coming into being through Jesus, turning away from their old values and embracing the new. It's like those other two little parables that Jesus told. If you remember the one about the old cloth, and the one about the old wineskins. It's also from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, and the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and then both are preserved. Those who would possess the new wine of the kingdom... Those who seek and find the kingdom will find that the possession of it involves an inevitable act of radical reorientation. Because lives lived by values from the old order simply cannot and will not contain or constrain the values of the new. But hear this very clearly. This is not about justifying a conflict between Judaism and Christianity. As we've already established, the pearl of great price is not the church, and that which is cast aside to possess it is not the law and the prophets. 
Just as the Pharisees had to hear that the kingdom was not synonymous with their interpretation of the Jewish tradition, so we too have to resist all attempts in our lives to constrain and contain the kingdom within any structure or institution of our own making. The church is not the kingdom. And neither does the church bring in the kingdom. Rather, the church witnesses to, is a servant of, and demonstrates the presence of the kingdom of heaven. The people of God are those who live into being in the world the radical reorientation of their values that occurred when they sought and found. The kingdom comes into being through those who live it into being. It is an action. It is not a thing. So our task, as has always been the task of the people of God, from the revelation to Abraham to the present day, is to live the new age into being right here, in the midst of the old. And unless the spirit of Jesus is with us, leading us to lives that exhibit the values that Jesus embodied, then maybe we have no right to speak of the presence of the kingdom. Do our lives bear the fruit of Jesus? Are our lives compassionate, accepting, forgiving, demonstrating justice, lived with joy? If our lives are marked by the reorientation of values that, that is the corollary of our taking possession of the precious pearl of the kingdom, then the new reality and humanity that Jesus lived into being in his world is similarly lived into being by us in our world. Are we living it into being? That's the key question. The kingdom of heaven is an action. And it's ours to enact. It's ours to seek. It's ours to find. It's ours to possess. It's ours to live. And so we're coming in a moment to the communion table. We're going to be taking the new wine of the kingdom into ourselves. And all who seek are invited to receive. This is no closed table. We will receive these gifts of bread and wine, which are symbol and sign of the kingdom of God. And we will be invited to repent and to turn intentionally towards Christ, to reorientate our lives towards him as he meets us around his table. And the radical reorientation of our lives continues as we find ourselves moving another step away from self and towards Christ, away from fear and towards courage, away from guilt and towards forgiveness, away from pain and towards healing, away from the old and towards the new. This is the new wine of the kingdom. It is ours to take and possess and then live into being. We're going to pray now for the needs of our world. Let us pray. Great God of creative abundance, 
We come before you this morning as a people in need of your generous blessing. And so we offer ourselves to you with open hands and receptive hearts. Take away from us our pretensions of self-reliance and unmask for us our images of self-security. Help us to realise that our fleeting blessings of health, wealth and power are fragile idols of sustenance and that we entrust our souls to them at our peril. May we instead learn to see ourselves and our world with your eyes. May we come to appreciate where true value lies, both within ourselves and the lives of others. May our eyes be opened to the gentle gifts of grace that you have placed in our midst, and may we come to value the abundance of your hidden yet dawning kingdom as it is made real in our midst. And so we offer ourselves to your service. Take the gifts of our lives and bless them, that we might become a blessing to others. Whether we bring wealth or weakness, power or poverty, health or helplessness, we place our lives into your hands and we ask for your blessing. So we offer before you today the resources of this church. We offer our resources of people, from pastors to volunteers to occasional attendees. We offer our resources of money, from that which sits in our personal bank accounts to that which we hold collectively as a community. We offer our building, our contacts, our friendships, our whole bodies, and the body of Christ in this church, in this place. May we learn together the lesson that hoarding the resources of the kingdom is not what we are called to. Grant us the courage to release to your service the gifts you have given to us. And so mindful of the needs of others, we pray for those who live in need, poverty, uncertainty and fear. And we are aware that you call us to play our part in the coming of your kingdom of peace and justice for all. We pray for all those who are hungry today, and especially for those who have this week used a food bank for the first time in order to feed themselves or their families. We pray for all those who will share lunch in this building today as we sit down together and share with one another the blessing of food. May this tangible sign of your kingdom be transformative and life-giving in our midst. As we have shared bread and wine, symbols of your body made whole, we pray for those who have an unhealthy or abusive relationship with food and drink. From the overweight to the anorexic, from the middle-class drinker to the hardened alcoholic, we recognise how easily the kingdom blessings of food and wine can become distorted in our own bodies. And so we pray for all those who will use anonymous groups this week. May we, each of us, 
learn to see ourselves as you see us, that through our bodies, your body, may be made known. And with an election looming, we pray for those who have the power to make changes at a national level. For policymakers, politicians, and business and industry leaders. Keep them from the dehumanising commodification of humanity. And may they instead find ways of bringing the body politic to health for the common good. We ask for and commit ourselves to your transformative vision of a just and equal society where none go hungry and all are fed. We pray for the work of London citizens and for the crucial meeting here this week on Wednesday evening. We thank you for this opportunity to engage with others in the politics of our city. And so finally we pray for ourselves. May we learn to share both the hidden and visible blessings of our lives, offering ourselves and all that we are and have to the service of your inbreaking kingdom of equality and justice. All this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.